The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, one of the most effective presidential cabinet members in modern history, James A. Baker III. He was in the middle of the national political scene for over 25 years, most notably as White House Chief of Staff and Secretary of State. His keen sense of compromise helped him famously navigate the many pitfalls of Washington politics, proving time and again that behind every successful POTUS is a strategic power broker who knows how to get things done. James Baker, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest experts today are Susan Glasser and her husband and writing partner, Peter Baker. Susan is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a CNN global affairs analyst, while Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and an MSNBC analyst. Susan and Peter are co-authors of the brand new best-selling book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James Baker. Thank you both for joining us here on American POTUS. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Susan and Peter, thank you so much. Susan, this is my first time talking with you. It's a real pleasure. Uh, Peter, we've known each other for a while since my service at the Bush Library. Long been a fan of the work of you both. I'd like to start today, if we can, with a pretty basic question. Why did you decide to focus on James Baker? What was it about him that first made you want to write this really wonderful book? Well, uh, thanks so much for having us. And we really appreciate Alan has always been a great help and supporter. We've had number of visits when the various libraries that he's run <laughs> over the years. I, in fact, what, you know, it, this actually traces back, Alan, to the time when you and I met, I think, when I was working on Days of Fire, which is about President George W. Bush and, and, and Vice President Dick Cheney. And when, I, when we were done with that, when I was done with that book, Susan and I were talking about doing a project together. And we were trying to figure out what would be a, a subject that has not been explored by many other authors, but would be worth, you know, telling a story. And, and, and Baker came to mind. We were we were actually surprised to learn that nobody had written a biography before. I mean, it, it, there's so many secretaries of state who have biographies written of them who haven't done very much, honestly. And this is a guy who not only was secretary of state during the end of the Cold War and the reunification of Germany and the Gulf War, he also served, obviously, as Reagan's chief of staff. And he ran five presidential campaigns. It's kind of like Karl Rove and Henry Kissinger rolled into one. So <laughs> we thought, boy, that's a big story to tell just by itself. And then more and more, we thought it was also a story of Washington and how things were and how things are today and how Baker's story tells us this bigger picture. What was your process? I know you had great access to, to Secretary Baker. What was your process in writing the book? Well, first of all, this took so long that <laughs> I can't say that we had uh, had it all worked out in advance. We certainly never anticipated uh, that it would be seven years, but we also didn't anticipate uh, the Trump era and uh, many, many news distractions along the way, including a false start of moving to Jerusalem, where uh, Peter's going to 
be the correspondent for the New York Times and left here in August of 2016. So we thought we'd have plenty of time uh, <laughs> in a foreign correspondent tour to finish the book up. And that was, of course, four years ago. So we quickly were summoned back to Washington. And uh, it is what it is. But in many ways, I think that benefited the book and us in thinking about both Tim Baker as a subject and also his Washington, which is really the other subject of the book. It's, it's, it's a story of uh, a unique figure in American politics. And I think it's also a story of a moment in American politics that is definitively passed now. But, you know, from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War, an era when the structural incentives in Washington were very much different than today. And we're getting things done with actually the goal and governing was the goal much more so of our political class than it is today in a, in a moment of permanent campaigning. I'm, I must admit, as I read the book and, and, and thought about another Baker I'd worked with, Howard Baker, he was cut from that same mold of getting things done, of working uh, for compromise and, and actually affecting good public policy along the way. So you make that point that James Baker, in many ways, idealized that, that partisan compromiser, a strong but civil statesman, doesn't that doesn't seem to exist anymore. How how did Baker become that man? How, who were his models? Yeah, it's a great question. He was not from a political family. He was from a family that was well-known in Houston. One of great-grandfather, grandfather, grandfather were architects of the modern Houston. But the family ethos was stay out of politics. In fact, the, mo- the motto was work hard, study, and stay out of politics. And I think that uh, for Baker, it was a late in life or midlife uh, career change after he decided that corporate law wasn't really doing it for him. And so it was kind of an accident of fate. He became friends on the tennis course in the Houston Country Club with George H.W. Bush. They both uh, were looking for a good doubles partner, basically, and they won a couple of championships. They would tell you all the way to the end of their lives about those championships. And it was that accident of fate that really brought them together. So when Baker had a tragedy in his family, his first wife passed away. Bush was the one who brought him into a Senate race that helped me with this uh, Senate race. And it kind of it really sucked. They forgot the bug. Before we, we dive more into the specifics of his career, for those folks who, unlike you, have never met James Baker, if we met him on the street today, if we were talking to him right now, what would strike us most about about James Baker? Well, you know, he was sometimes described as a chameleon. And, you know, that that is an interesting description because he was somebody who was very comfortable in a wide uh, range of milieu and extremely good uh, at talking to you uh, on your level, whether that is the level of a Soviet foreign minister uh, or a good old boy senator from North Mm -hmm. Carolina uh, or a sort of uh, East Coast establishment type. Uh, He had a sort of shape-shifting skill, a negotiator skill perhaps of interacting with people on their own level. And what's interesting is that uh, you know, he came from, as Peter mentioned, this kind of very constricted world of the, the Houston aristocracy. Uh, and, you know, his family really had helped to build modern Houston and many of its institutions, uh, but did not have ambitions in many ways outside of that. In fact, uh, Baker was forced by his father, really, to um, come back to Texas for law school. He'd gone to Princeton for college at his father's insistence. That was also his father's alma mater. But when it came to law school, uh, Baker might have been interested in somewhere like Harvard, but his dad said, no, you're going to be practicing here in Texas and you must go to UT Law School. So, you know, he's this urbane, sophisticated man 
but he also, you know, is a genuine cowboy boot wearing, tobacco chewing uh, hunter who loves to brag that he was the youngest member uh, and is now the oldest member of a famous hunting club outside of Houston. Let's talk a bit about the perilous times at the end of the Cold War. I know, um, I'm sure you know Jeff Engel, who was a, a former guest on American POTUS, a good friend of ours at SMU, who wrote about H.W. Bush and Baker's deft handling of of that of that difficult, challenging time as the Soviet Union uh, was collapsing. What what would you classify as the the greatest kind of Baker Bush accomplishment during those times? Well, it's a great question. I mean, you can name a number of them, right? But I do think that the, bringing the Cold War to a peaceful uh, end it, it just stands out as a, as a remarkable moment in history. Now, they were not the ones who won the Cold War, per se. You, I don't think you could say that it was because of Baker that the uh, Soviet Union collapsed. That would be going too far. But, you know, during these revolutionary times, it mattered how America responded, how America handled it. And it could have ended in a very different way. This did not have to be a, a peaceful, joyous, uh, you know, moment in history. That, and, and yet it was because, obviously, of the individuals who were involved, most particularly Bush and Baker, that, uh, you know, that it worked out probably as well as it did, mm-hmm. at least for the time. Obviously, we can talk about, you know, the 20 or 30 years since then. But, but for that moment, at a time of great volatility, their steady handling of it was clearly, I think, vital and, and meaningful, consequential. I think, as Jeff would say, the genius of knowing what to do and what not to do, what to say and what not right. to say was very important. And I know you, you both have co-authored a book called Kremlin Rising as well. So you talked about the next 20 or 30 years after that. What could, if anything, they have done different that would have forestalled the, the rise of the Putin autocracy we see today? You know, it's very interesting. There are so many what-ifs uh, associated with that period in history. And, you know, you can, on the positive side for Baker, look at German unification as an enormous accomplishment that might not have happened uh, in in a short window of time, relatively speaking, in which uh, he had to make it happen. But the flip side, as you say, is was there more that the United States could have done uh, and, and the Western allies to create in Russia the conditions for a more successful, long-lasting transition to democracy and uh, uh, market capitalism. And there, I think the record is mixed. You know, what Baker would say is that the politics just did not support more aid to Russia in that transition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that as it was, uh, it was very hard to get through even uh, the amounts that were sent to the former Soviet Union. But it was wildly insufficient. It was nowhere near the commitment that the United States made at the end of World War II to uh, rebuilding uh, Europe and rebuilding Japan. It it, it just wasn't on the same level, despite it having been essentially a 50-year-long conflict. And, you know, Peter and I arrived in Moscow basically a decade after these events. And, uh, you know, it was clear that uh, Vladimir Putin, although he was sort of a almost an unknown figure coming from uh, the upper middle ranks at best of the former KGB, that he was pushing on buttons that were easily pushed with the Russian people, uh, the narrative of grievance toward the West, the idea that they had lost the Cold War so much as have, having had it been pulled out, that the U.S. Uh, saw it as a triumph, uh, and that it really was, you know, Putin is the master of zero-sum politics. Right. You know, like we won and they lost. And although Bush and Baker tried very hard 
not to bite the football, as uh, George H.W. Bush said. Uh, that became the narrative anyways in, in Russia and that, that Putin used. So it's hard to say because perhaps the sums that would have been required were so vast, they were inconceivable politically. But, you know, it's a really important question to ask. I think, you know, Putin appears to be using the same playbook that dictators have often used. Certainly Hitler used that same playbook after the First World War, that the victory had been snatched away from them, that they had been betrayed. And um, I think Putin obviously was was setting up uh, an outside enemy to create his own power. So that is, um, it's a really interesting question of what the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and more after that could have done, should have done, what kind of funds would have been needed to do that? Um, really fascinating question. So I'm, I'm going to scoot away from that for a moment from Russia to another very interesting topic, and that's Iraq. Uh, it looms large in the legacies of James Baker and both Presidents Bush. Of course, Baker played a huge role in the diplomacy that put together the coalition before the Persian Gulf War. But of course, after that war, both he and 41 took criticism for perhaps not going far enough, by, at least from some quarters. Then under Bush 43, I know well Baker took a very wary view of going into Iraq and then was co-leader of the Iraq study group. So at the end of the day, as you spoke with Baker, how did he assess the act, his actions over the year vis-a-vis Iraq? And what did he view, if there was one, would have been the ideal solution to the challenge that Iraq um, posed to us? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, for a lot of years, Baker said after the Gulf War, he would get people asking him, well, why, I, why didn't you guys go on to Baghdad? Why did mm-hmm. you stop? And in fact, it was a unanimous decision back then, by the way. Even Dick Cheney, who was defense secretary, agreed they should not go on to Baghdad, should not topple Saddam Hussein, that that went beyond their the mission that they had won so much international support for. And they didn't want to own, you know, in the, Colin Powell's famous pottery barn rule, you know, you break it, you own it. Mm-hmm. And so Baker for years had to defend that decision because they said, well, how come you left this guy in power? What a mistake that was. What Baker would tell you today is I don't get that question anymore. And that's true. He doesn't get that question anymore because now we've seen in some ways the consequences of what might have happened in 1991 had they did what they did in 2003. And Baker's a skeptic of military power. He's a believer in American leadership. He's a believer in, you know, uh, you know Washington playing a major role in, 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 in the world. But he's not a believer in sending in the 101st Airborne every time something happens. In fact, when we talked to him, I remember this day we were out of the ranch, his ranch in Wyoming. He was kind enough to have us out there. And we were talking about it. And I, you know, he just kind of like made his face. He just was so aggrieved by what had happened. He says, I'm just no more wars, he said. No more wars. Mm-hmm. He's so unhappy with how America had been, you know, dragging militarily to this region beyond where he thought we should have gone. Did he foresee the rise of the Islamist fundamentalist movements? No, no I don't think so. so. Baker Baker was laser focused on uh, what he saw as the strategic challenges of his moment, and that's you know where you could fault mm-hmm. him as a diplomat. In fact, is the things that were on the periphery. Uh, he he just he was uh, ruthlessly focused on uh, the unraveling of the Soviet Union as the central. Uh, challenge of the Bush presidency and therefore of his tenure at the State Department. He wasn't wrong about that, of course, but mm-hmm. I think the rise of Islam is it kind of falls in the same category in some ways as uh, the unraveling of the former Yugoslavia and the war in the Balkans, mm-hmm. wars, plural, in the Balkans that ensued, which also, you know, you could say is one of the, the failings of Baker's tenure in office. I, I just don't think he wasn't as good at those things that required peripheral uh, international sure. vision. 
on a lighter note, you have me wondering, what was his Wyoming ranch like? <laughs> you know, so Peter and I, that was certainly a high point of um, doing this book is that we did get to go visit Tim Baker and his wife, Susan, uh, on their ranch in Wyoming. And you know, that was, first of all, it's gorgeous. Second <laughs> of all, it is not like a fancy, you know, rich person's architectural digest ranch. <laughs> you know, it is a real ranch. Uh, yeah. And in fact, he and his wife live in the original settler's cabin, a uh, homesteader's cabin uh, on uh, the ranch. They've subsequently built a uh, kind of bunkhouse for their family, a guest house that, uh, you know, their guests like us stayed in. Uh, but there's a generator there uh, and uh, a lot of animals. When, when Secretary Baker took us on a tour, uh, he got out. He wanted to show us a, a nice open field. Uh, and he said, as soon as he got out, he said, oh, shoot, I forgot my gun. Because there's a lot of bears around here. <laughs> worried. Can you imagine the headlines if we had lost a Secretary of State to a bear? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very rustic place. He and his wife would argue about uh, how late uh, at night they could keep the generator running. <laughs> you want to turn it off. You want to keep the electricity on. We've uh, all had so. that argument. We've all had that <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into Baker's critical time as Reagan's chief of staff, a quick note about you getting in touch with us here at American POTUS. We're always happy to see your comments or suggestions about this episode or any of the others. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com or send us a note on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're there on your favorite social platform, we'd appreciate it if you spread the word about the podcast. Let's go back in time a bit to Baker's service as chief of staff for mm-hmm. President Reagan. How did he approach the role of chief of staff, and why was he so successful in it? That's a great question. First of all, the very fact that he was chief of staff is remarkable, right? Because Baker at that point had run not one but two campaigns against Ronald Reagan. First, Gerald Ford at the 1976 convention where they beat back Reagan's challenge, the, the last basically contested convention we've ever had. And then again, in 1980, when he ran Bush's campaign, which, uh, you know, uh, was surprisingly strong against Reagan and strong enough to get him onto the ticket as the vice presidential candidate. So there's no reason you would think that Ronald Reagan would look at Jim Baker and say, this is my guy. But I think it says a lot about Reagan that he picked Baker and obviously a lot about Baker, too, because Baker wasn't an ideologue. He was conservative, is conservative, but he's not a, a, a revolutionary. But he wanted to get stuff done. And I think that his main ethos as chief of staff was how do I take Reagan's vision and translate it into actual wins, things that we can get done. He, he cast aside the things he thought were a waste of time, like trying to abolish the education department, other things that were red meat, perhaps for the base, but were never going to happen with a Democratic House. And he picked the things he thought he could get done, like tax cuts, the economic program in particular, because the economy was doing badly. And he took a lot of flack from the Reaganites who thought he was insufficiently conservative, the whole let Reagan be Reagan phrase was really a jab at Baker. But in fact, he was doing what Baker wanted him to do. He was doing what Reagan wanted him to do. Reagan was more of a pragmatist himself, I think, than a lot of people acknowledge. Very true. And I think uh, you, you also spell out in your book the, the whole back and forth with uh, Deaver and uh, was it Spencer and others and Meese at the very beginning. Very interesting look at the dynamics of all those folks around Reagan as the administration began. Well, that's right. It was before the current administration, really. It was a byword for backstabbing, internal intrigue, uh, sort of tumult uh, over to you. That was the narrative, actually, of the early Reagan administration and this troika, uh, uh, of which 
Baker found a way pretty quickly to emerge as uh, the first among equals. And he really masterfully uh, showed, I think, in that role, uh, a lot of the skill set that he would use not only as White House Chief of Staff, but then as Treasury Secretary and uh, as Secretary of State. And, you know, look, there are some simple lessons here. Some of what Jim Baker did is very specific to the man. Some is very specific to the moment, right? You know, it's not, you know, American power isn't what it was uh, at the end of the Cold War. But then some of it is really, I think, eternal in terms of what works in Washington or what works in politics. And I, I, to me, that's the story of Baker as chief of staff in the White House, you know, that he just played a masterful game uh, that is rightly studied by his would-be successors even to this day. You know, you Ed Meese wanted a fancy title uh, and a big corner office uh, and to have cabinet status. Jim Baker knew that those things were not nearly as important as the things he was in charge of, uh, you know, little things like personnel and uh, legislative affairs and the press office and, most importantly, perhaps, controlling all the paper flow to and from the president of the United States. That's what real power is. In this, or arguably in any bureaucracy. Very interesting. A very difficult job. But he, he made the move, as, as you noted, in the second Reagan term to Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury. And he, he would state that he thought that the whole Iran-Contra mess that happened in that second Reagan term would not have happened, perhaps, if he had been chief of staff still. What Was he right in that? He certainly knew the issues of Iran and Nicaragua, the Contras. He knew the main players, Poindexter North and so forth. Would he... What about his style would have stopped that from happening, perhaps, that Don Regan didn't have? Well, I think Baker would have thought it was a, a fool's errand to be trying to trade weapons for, for, for hostages in Iran, especially to divert the funds to uh, the Contras. He ran a pretty tight ship, uh, when he, you know, a pretty disciplined ship, the idea that Ali North would have had the luxury of doing what he did without you know, somebody like Baker catching on. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of people think. You know, Mike Deaver said he thought that if Baker had still been chief of staff, Iran-Contra wouldn't have. I think Nancy Reagan thought that as well, mm-hmm. that that was a, a key mistake for her husband when the two of them switched their jobs in the second term. And, you know, he was always suspicious of the adventurism. At the very first days of the camp, of the White House, when he was taking over, he was staff, he sits down with Mike Deaver, and Deaver describes this. He says, we're sitting so close, our knees are almost touching, and Baker says to him, look, our first job is going to watch out for these guys who are going to try to get us and the president in the you know war in, the, in Central America, we can't let that happen. And so obviously they did fund the Contras, and they were having a proxy war. But he wanted to make sure that America didn't get itself caught up there. And he had a real uh, high degree of skepticism of some of the you know the, the adventurists in the White House. So interesting. And when he is at Treasury, though, um, what what would you classify as his greatest accomplishments there? And how did? A man with no real formal training in that. How was he so yeah. successful at, at the uh, uh, Treasury Department? Uh, to say the least, no formal training. Uh, you know, he had a single undergraduate course at Princeton uh, in economics, and I don't think he did all too well in it. Uh, <laughs> <to begin> with. <laughs> uh, you know, on paper, he's no more qualified than I uh, to be Treasury Secretary. And believe me, I'm definitely not qualified. <laughs> uh, you know, he's not no finance background, no um, Wall Street, nothing. But, of course, he brought uh, a unique understanding that he already had of the politics of mid-1980s Washington. He had brought the clout uh, of the president of the United States and the intimate knowledge of how to work levers of power in the Reagan administration since he was the one who had built those levers of power. And, of course, he had had a real focus on Congress 
when he was in the White House and uh, working Capitol Hill to get deals. So that became, I think, the paramount skill for him in negotiating what became his signature accomplishment uh, of that and, and, frankly, of many future Treasury secretaries, which was the 1986 tax reform, sweeping tax reform legislation. People thought it was unthinkable that it could get done, uh, but Reagan had made it his main legislative priority for the beginning of his second term. Uh, And Baker, interestingly, uh, found that in some ways it was easier to negotiate with the Democrats who controlled the House uh, and Dan Rostenkowski, who was the powerful chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, than it was in some respects to negotiate with the Senate Republicans of his own party. But, it, you know, that was a lasting accomplishment that had everything to do with Baker's political skills and negotiating skills, uh, much more so than any uh, finance background would have. We'll talk about Baker's role in the 2000 presidential election recount in just a second. But first, we want to remind you who's behind this new show. The brand new National Museum of American Presidents is responsible for the podcast. We would love to hear your comments or questions about this episode or any other. Just visit AmericanPOTUS.com or leave us a note on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Far ahead in the future into the administration of uh, Bush 43. And and Peter, again, you mentioned earlier your terrific book, Days of Fire, all about that administration. And James Baker played a big role there at the very beginning. He was sent by W to Florida during the whole recount mess in uh, 2000, during the presidential election in 2000. Can you outline for our listeners what role Baker played in that recount and why W asked him to help and why, as you said in the book, uh, the Democrats knew they were in trouble when uh, James Baker was sent to Florida? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I thought, George W. just Bush didn't want Baker around to campaign at first because he wanted to show that he was his own man. He didn't want to be mm-hmm. daddy's son running the same playbook and the same characters all over again in 2000. So Baker, and Baker understood that, and he kept, you know, he kept a healthy distance, and he tried very hard not to get in the way or do anything that would cause problems for W. But when the election day was over and they suddenly found themselves with a few hundred votes ahead in Florida, everything on the line, the person who picked up the phone to call was Jim Baker. And you're right. The Democrats told us uh, when we researched this book that when they realized that Baker was going to be in charge, they thought, well, that's it. We're probably going to lose. <laughs> because Baker had this aura around him. He had this aura of a winner, of a, of a, of a great uh, uh, you know, skill set that was not, not law necessarily, although he was obviously a talented lawyer. He was really about politics and the marriage of, of, of politics and law. So he goes to Florida and he oversees Bush's recount effort. And the fundamental, two fundamental things he does. One, is he understands clearly that they cannot fall behind even for a single day because the, their strength of their argument is Bush won on election night. He won after the first recount. He won after the second recount. He was always ahead, and therefore there's no reason to suspect his victory was genuine. And the second insight was this is going to end the Supreme Court. And other conservatives don't particularly like the idea of bringing these kinds of cases to the federal court. At least that's the orthodoxy. And he just kind of, you know, he doesn't stand on that kind of thing. If it means they're going to win, they're going to toss aside orthodoxy and go to the Supreme Court. And that's what they did. Now, one of the things I would say, in addition to that, is because we're thinking a lot about this today, right? With what's going to happen with this election and whether there'll be another Florida or maybe another three Floridas or four Floridas, who knows? But the difference then is in Baker and in Al Gore and George W. Bush and the other players back then, you had people who were willing to cut, uh, to fight tooth and nail within the system to win. But once it was over, they had a fundamental respect for the system. They had a fundamental respect for the outcome and said, okay, well, I'm not happy about it in the case of the Democrats. But Al Gore gave a very gracious 
seat. And the Republicans were gracious enough to reach out the aisle and say, look, we're now president. I'm pushed that I'm president of all people. The difference today is I'm not sure we have a president who is like that. He's already made clear he's, that the vote is going to be illegitimate unless he wins. And he's going to feel quite free to tear down uh, the credibility of the system as a whole. Well, hopefully um, the uh, the results this year will be clearer than that. We won't have to go through that. I remember 2000 was was um, quite quite a challenge for so many people. And, and But you're right, at the end of the day, um, the, the players backed off and said the system works and we need, we need to proceed with the republic and, and uh, keep that in uppermost in our mind. Um, I remember th- when, when Gore took back his concession, though, I remember, didn't W say, what do you mean you're taking it back, right? So yeah, then, you, yeah, then, then you go into all that for the for those weeks, but then it was thankfully resolved. Yeah. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to jump out of that topic for a moment and go back to Baker as a political, kind of a political genius, uh, later in life at least, and, and, and amazing accomplishments as you detail in your terrific book. But the one time he actually ran for office – he was not that good of a of a candidate for attorney general in Texas. It's, well, how do you explain how he couldn't be a good candidate himself, but could run campaigns and be so politically savvy otherwise? Well, you know, it's true that uh, in many ways, of course, losing that 1978 race for Texas attorney general was uh, his great ultimate long term benefit, as as so many failures in life are. Right? I mean, that's you know a very human aspect of his uh, biography. But imagine if he had one, then he probably you know, he certainly would never mm-hmm. have uh, gone on to the success he, he saw in Washington, and he would not have been Secretary of State. And, you know, it's possible that George H.W. Bush not only would not have been vice president, but never would have become president. So mm-hmm. it's a fascinating kind of like alternate history mm-hmm. version. But, you know, the bottom line was he was a lousy candidate. He did <laughs> not want to kick babies <laughs> and shake hands. And it just, you know, perhaps it was his patrician upbringing, perhaps it was uh, you know, just some reserve in his nature, but he was much more comfortable with backroom politics. Uh, and it showed, uh, in fact, that we talked with a reporter who had covered him in that campaign, who made that observation. They would go to the county fairs and Baker would just walk right by <laughs> the people who could actually cast votes for him, but he would make a beeline to the county judge or whoever was the main power broker there and immediately find out, you know, how the place was wired. And, uh, you know, some people, that's their state. And I think for Baker, you know, that was his state. That was where he was built to shine. Not only in American politics, I think, you know, the amazing story of his rise Mm -hmm. is that he went from this sort of constrained world of a Texas corporate lawyer bound by family and duty into a relatively, you know, certainly privileged but narrow world. Uh, And as he went to bigger and bigger playing fields, he essentially, you know, found himself thriving in, in all of those. And so, you know, he had never done finance, as we talked about as Treasury Secretary, he, he not only did the tax reform, but he loved negotiating with his international counterparts and the Plaza Accord that he negotiated uh, were essentially the first time that central bankers around the world, you know, agreed to coordinate fiscal policy, which is a really big deal mm-hmm. in that world. And again, it was something new to Baker, but he thrives in it. Same thing as Secretary of State. So learning your strengths, learning from failure, what what else did you personally learn from? What did you take to heart from your learning the story of James Baker? Well, I, a couple of things. One, as, as Susan said, I think how how history is, is it can be so chancy, right? That you know, had he not met George Bush on the tennis court, you know, he might never have become Secretary of State. Had he won that election, you know, Bush might not have been president. I think also basically the fundamental uh, difference 
between then and now is that Baker was a tough knife fighter in elections, but when the election was over, he wanted to sit down with people and make things happen, get things done, including people from the other side, right? Yeah. So he sat down with Democrats to revamp Social Security in 2000, sorry, in 1983. He sat down with Democrats to redo the tax code, as you mentioned in, in 1986. He sat down with Democrats to get the Contra War resolved in 1989. And, you know, for Baker, and for Bush and for a lot of the people of that generation, I think elections were the, un- the necessary step in order to get to the place where you could actually do something, not the other way around. Today, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of times it's the other way around. We're governing. It's simply setting up the next election. So looking at the office of the presidency, what fascinates you both most about that office? Our friend, Mike McFall, who was uh, the ambassador to Russia under Barack Obama, and before that, he was his chief Russia advisor in the White House. Mike has spent his career as an academic, uh, and he's just an expert on the former Soviet Union, which is how we got to know him at Stanford. And, you know, he said that for him, the biggest surprise uh, at working in the White House and going to work there every day was how much it, it sort of defied modern trends in political science. And he <laughs> came to really reappreciate uh, the role of individual decisions uh, in shaping longer term trends, you know, and that in recent years, both history and uh, political science have emphasized that macro trends at the expense of the individual decision maker. And he said that he just couldn't in good conscience come out of his tour in the White House still uh, believing that quite so fervently. And I think for Peter and I, uh, certainly this book was uh, 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 an extended reminder uh, of that lesson that Mike took, uh, in part because it's so clear uh, that there were individual decisions that might have gone against the grain uh, or choices that would have been made differently. For example, the Supreme Court has been a big subject of discussion in, in the last couple of weeks since the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And look at the maximalist sort of power for its own sake interpretation taken by Mitch McConnell and President Trump in terms of pushing through a nominee so close to an election or at least trying to. Well, you know, Ronald Reagan had an opening for the Supreme Court in 1981, and they wanted to appoint a woman. And uh, it was Jim Baker, interestingly. I didn't know this. It was Jim Baker who really advocated for Sandra Day O'Connor. And, uh, you know, that ultimately became a big part of Reagan's legacy, first woman on the Supreme Court. The conservatives, even then, were extremely unhappy about this choice. They correctly, as it turned out, foresaw that Sandra Day O'Connor would be a, a more moderate voice on the courts than they wanted. Uh, and Baker physically blocked them from even meeting with Reagan to air these concerns. And to me, that's an example of why he wasn't just a tactician for his own sake. You know, he wasn't a purely ideology-free uh, actor, right? Uh, that's a choice that was made by someone in a position of power. And it, it, it had a long-term effect uh, on our country and therefore on the world. Very interesting. I, I just want to know one last thing. And how was it possible for you to write a book together and still stay married? <laughs> you know, that's a, that is a question we get a lot, I have to admit. I think a lot of uh, people can't imagine uh, doing that. Well, look, we are still speaking, uh, so that's a good sign. Uh, it is actually our second book together. As you point yeah. out, we read Kremlin mm-hmm. Rising. In fact, Kremlin Rising is somebody with more of a challenge because we wrote it when Susan was pregnant. And uh, oh that's, a, that's an extra challenge. In fact, 
we went to dinner one night while we were writing that book and she, we're walking home and she said, I think the baby just dropped. And I said, as a, husband, as, a, as, a, as a husband who's really ignorant, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and what it meant was we had only a few hours to finish our last two chapters. Yeah, of course, kind of like, right. <laughs> we got our last two chapters and I said, okay, I just sent the, the send button on those chapters. She says, good, I'm having contractions. <laughs> so we, we finished our book and had our baby on the same day. So that this book, is great. Is, this book was easy by comparison. No baby, no uh, no pregnancy. It was straightforward. Look, we uh, we we met in the newsroom of the Washington Post. He was my editor, and that's how we got started. So we've always had a great marriage of of professional and personal, uh, you know, partnership. And it, it's just, it's it's how we're wired. We just celebrated our twentieth anniversary. That is terrific. What's next for you both? Well, we got a lot to go. Before the next uh, yeah. month, even. Yeah. <laughs> Assuming that we can, you know, I'm knocking wood here, uh, get through uh, whatever this next period is going to bring. We we are going to write a book uh, together uh, about this Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started out as a book about impeachment uh, because that was coming full circle for us. We met at the Post, as Peter said, but working together for the 14 months that was the Barr investigation and the Lewinsky saga. Uh, we used to say we're the only good thing that came out of the Monica Lewinsky saga. Uh, but, but, but obviously it's not going to be just a book about impeachment anymore because this is 2020. And let's be real. Can you even remember that impeachment happened this year? I mean, it's, um, you know, so I think we've enlarged the scale of it. Uh, and it will be a book about sort of the disruption that Trump has brought to Washington. So a kind of a, a different iteration on the theme of Washington, but bringing it up to the present day. Susan and Peter, we, we'd like to give our listeners a look into the personal side of our featured character in each episode. Are you able to help us with a little American POTUS quickfire? Sure. All right. Other than POTUS 40, 41, or 43, which obviously were his favorites, who do you think his favorite president would be or is? <laughs> Bakers. Yes. That's a good question. You know, he's not a student of history. He didn't sit there and tell us, gosh, I'm a big Lincoln guy or I'm a big uh, Teddy Roosevelt guy. I like he, he one thing he had in common with Teddy Roosevelt. I think is that he is kind of an outdoorsman, mm-hmm. right? He loves to go hunting and fishing. I think that's one thing where he and Teddy Roosevelt probably had a lot in common. And he might have he might have said that his family did not like FDR when he was growing up. They were Texas Democrats, so they mm-hmm. thought that FDR was way too liberal for them. But I think uh, I don't know if I'm giving thoughts on that. Interesting, yeah. I mean, he's not a like uh, military bluster guy like Teddy Roosevelt, but I, I agree with that. That um, you know, understanding. Baker as a man of the West, more even than a a Southerner, was one of the keys to to getting who he is. And also understanding he's famous for hunting. But I think we came to realize that it's not so much for him about the killing the animals (laughs) as it is for like (laughs) being out there in nature. So in that sense, that's kind of like Teddy Roosevelt, too. Of his many jobs in government service, what do you think was the most fulfilling for him? He loved being secretary of state. And he did not want to give it up, uh, and he was dragged very reluctantly back into uh, what turned out to be the disastrous 1992 campaign uh, of Bush, where he ultimately lost re-election. But um, no question that he he saw correctly that it was not only the pinnacle of his or any career, but that it was uh, at this incredible moment when the hinges of history were turning, uh, and that he got to be someone who determined where where they were going. So actually, I think it was he was great at being White House Chief of Staff, he was miserable doing it. And I think that's not the case for Secretary of State. So he and POTUS 41 were notorious tennis partners, as you mentioned. Who was more competitive, though, 
And who won more? <laughs> this is why they liked each other because they were both, were both competitive. They they liked to play together as doubles. That uh, you know, Bush was a better net guy. Baker was a better <laughs> baseline guy. They both had pretty weak serves. That's what they would tell you. <laughs> we interviewed President Bush forty one before he passed about, it, and he says, "Oh, definitely Baker's the better player." But it was um, tennis was at the heart of their relationship because it was about competition. And these guys like to win. Well, the other thing I would say about tennis is that. It's actually a key to understanding Baker even before and separate from the Bush thing. He was a fanatical tennis player as a kid. He went on to be the captain of the tennis team at the Hill School, the prep school he went to. His father uh, was also a big tennis player and pushed him very hard. He described his tennis coach to us at one point, actually, uh, as a, a second father to him. And his dad was so demanding that when Baker was young and he played a match, his dad would say that he had to go back on the court and keep practicing after the match. What would you say his most impressive skill is? I think reading other people. I think that, mm. you know, whether it be in domestic politics or international affairs, the thing he brought to the table was a keen instinct and intuition about what the person on the other side needed in order to be successful. So when he was trying to get something in a negotiation, he figured out how to get what he wanted while letting the other person walk away with something that was good for that person as well. And you understood what the other person's red lines were, how far you could push them and beyond which you couldn't. And I think that was something that, uh, that you don't see a lot in Washington right now. And finally, what, what's your favorite quote of his? Hmm. That's yours. <laughs> That's a good one. I mean, he's a very, he's a very pithy character, uh, but you know, he was, he was an earthy character in his day. <laughs> you know, he wasn't above talking about, uh, you know, the rat fuck in the, Reagan administration, and uh, you know, he was a real down-to-earth character. I got one. Uh, you got one, got one. Yeah, yeah. We asked, we asked him. Everybody asked him, "What was your most?" This one of your lightning round questions. What was your most important accomplishment in Washington? He said, "Getting out without being indicted." <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That is great. Well. Susan, Susan and Peter, thank you so much for joining us today on American POTUS. I hope all of our listeners go out right away and buy The Man Who Ran Washington, a terrific book about James Baker. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Alan. It's really great to be with you guys. You're terrific. Wonderful conversation. Thank you again for reading the book and uh, for listening to us. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic designed by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can always visit AmericanPotus.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Finally, it's our last word from James Baker. Quote, Sometimes you move publicly, sometimes privately, sometimes quietly, and sometimes at the top of your voice. <laughs>